My name is Maria. And I'm Rachel. And we're the hosts of Remember Me. Each week we'll be tackling a different component of FTD, and we invite you to come along on this journey with us. We'll be interviewing the Dream Team at the Penn FTD Center, a multidisciplinary team of doctors, social workers, researchers, and beyond. This season is a beautiful combination of stories and science where you'll hear from both experts and past guests. Whether you're on the other side of this journey, if you're in the thick of it, or sadly just starting to hear about FTD, our goal in creating this series is to provide more context, more understanding, and lots of compassion for both you and your loved one. As we share the stories and we listen to the science, it's our hope that this season reminds you that you are not on this journey alone. This is season eight of Remember Me. had absolutely no no impulse control no ability to wait if we ordered food or I made food he would just attack it he would elbow people out of the way to get to you mm-hmm. know a pizza so when I realized that he might be getting into the disinhibition phase I sat him down and asked mm-hmm. him dad where is your money and this is a person who For my entire life, I never knew if we were billionaires or going to be evicted tomorrow. But Uh I sat there with my laptop and I said, Dad, where is your money? And he just rattled off a list of accounts, logins, passwords, balances, who his contact was at his investment bank. And I created a neat and tidy spreadsheet. And I said, excellent. Don't tell that to anyone else. Um, So at that point, you know, then started doing some work to make sure, you know, his credit cards, which had not been paid in several months as part of this kind of decline, were getting paid. So I took him to Macy's to pay off his store card and he wandered away from me and came, uh, I I was making a payment at like a cash register and I don't know, like the men's department or something. He disappears for 10 minutes while I'm talking to this associate to try and pay off the American Express. (laughs) And he comes back with a different pair of shoes on than what he left with and said, I want these shoes. Someone gave them to me. They're in my size. So I'm going to have them now. And I, before seeing, you know, somebody start to follow behind him, said to the the cashier, well, go ahead and take those shoes as well. So I was able to prevent him from stealing from, from the store. So we, when he was in the early phases of FTD, was still capable of traveling. We wanted him to be um, a part of family events. And so I was supposed to get married. And my mother insisted that I have a wedding shower. For this reason, we we traveled to Houston. I rented a large house where my siblings, my father, and my partner and I all stayed. And my brother stayed with him overnight to watch him. And uh, my dad left in the middle of the night and wandered around this gated community that we were staying in 
And I woke up the next morning and we couldn't find him. We spent several hours driving around to this community um, in North Houston that was a gated golf community and got the pro shop involved, got all these people in the neighborhood involved, looking for him frantically, couldn't find him. And then I started getting this like intuition, (laughs) thinking about, I know where I am right now. Uh, So I called the sheriff's department and I said, have you by any chance picked up somebody without identification with a thick accent overnight? And they said, yes, we have. So what happened was that he went outside at four o'clock in the morning, went for a walk, and then he couldn't remember which house he was staying in. So he got it wrong by one. And the people next door... When a Middle Eastern man Uh knocked on their door at 530 in the morning Mm -hmm. and said, I live here, became very scared, called the police, and the sheriff's department immediately picked him up and arrested him. And then when we found him, they hadn't booked him because he didn't have identification on him or anything except one of those evil eye glass beads Mm -hmm. in his pockets to protect him from bad things. So I had to extract him from the sheriff's department and in the process avoid getting arrested myself. So yeah, that that was a that was not a good time. And and but, you were supposed to be celebrating your wedding. Oh yeah, it was my wedding shower. Yes. Happy oh, wedding. Oh, Yay, Happy congratulations. Wedding. I can't. I just when I think of your dad, I don't know him. I've seen like one photo of him. Like how could you be mad? He's yeah. so sweet. Like Rachel, he wanted his own car. He's just wanted yeah, to Yeah, he just, he wants to live his life. Like, when I he wanted cool shoes. Up, <laughs> he comes out of booking. His clothes are inside out. And the first thing he says to me is, well, in, in Farsi, I'm a prisoner. Like just matter of fact. And that's it. But like, just like really like quiet, small voice. And my buddy. The, yeah, exactly. Like the rest of the day, he was just like very calm, quiet, not agitated. I think he just seemed confused about what was going on, why he was there. And for the rest of the day to anybody around him, he just kept repeating in Farsi, I'm a prisoner, I'm a prisoner, I'm a prisoner. are joined by Katya Raskovsky. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> we thank you so much for lending your expertise. Of course, you are coming to us from not physically sitting at the Penn FTD Center, <laughs> but you are a part of that dream team who we love so much. So let's let's just dive right in. This is this is a big okay. one. Mm-hmm. So can you just start us off? with your definition of both disinhibition and impulse control and are are they kind of one in the same are they separate let's let's start there that's a great question actually <laughs> one that is being debated by a lot of people so there are many ways to define disinhibition but i particularly like the definition that is used by dr mario mendez at ucla um Woo! and his team yeah <laughs> shout out to you los angeles <laughs> that's right um, 
So he defines disinhibition as unrestrained behavior with disregard for rules or consequences, okay? And then he further divides disinhibition into person-based disinhibition and generalized impulsivity. So in very simple terms, person-based disinhibition includes inappropriate interactions with people, right? And generalized impulsivity pertains to opportunistic, like general rule violations that don't involve people or that may or may not be performed in a social context. So let me give you some examples. Within the diagnostic criteria for behavioral variant FTD, Generalized impulsivity would refer to like impulsive, rash, or careless actions. And these include things like reckless driving, nuance at gambling, stealing, usually like food or shiny objects, things that capture attention, buying or selling objects without regard for consequences, or indiscriminate sharing of personal information, like giving out your credit card number or giving out your social security number. Now, if you think about it, these are actions that may or may not be performed in a social context, right? So a person can drive impulsively or gamble by themselves. Now, person-based disinhibition would include socially inappropriate behavior and loss of manners or decorum. So they need people. And examples of behaviors that violate social norms include things like inappropriately approaching, touching, or kissing strangers, verbal or physical aggression, public nudity or urination, inappropriate sexual acts, or even unfortunately criminal behavior like theft or shoplifting. And then loss of manners or decorum includes a range of behavior that violate social graces. So for example, things like inappropriate laughter, cursing, being loud, offensive jokes or opinions, or crude or sexually explicit remarks. And patients may also display a general lack of etiquette. So like failing to stand in line or eating with their mouth open or a loss of respect for interpersonal space. Now, in general, severity of disinhibition is associated with atrophy or dysfunction in what we call the orbitofrontal cortex. But some researchers believe that different types of disinhibition may be subserved by different networks. So for example, while general impulsivity may be related to dysfunction in frontal areas and their connections, like rude or insensitive comments, things that happen in a social context may have to do with a loss of social knowledge stemming from dysfunction in the right anterior temporal lobes. So that's basically my, my adopted definition of this innovation. I like that distinction. Beautifully said. I, I'm like, I mean, yes, tell me more. Wow. Okay. <laughs> All of this is so like spot on if your loved one exhibits disinhibition. So one question we get asked a lot is, do people know? Like people that are affected with FTD, do they know? So I'll give you an example. My dad, he was very early on, didn't have a diagnosis, but we knew something was bizarre. Um, We went to a Mexican restaurant for dinner. And of course he ordered his beer and then, I don't know, I was turning this way and I looked back and he was up and walking and he went into the kitchen and got one of those, you know, chip baskets, filled his little basket Mm -hmm. with, and the cooks are like, um, there's a man back here filling his chip basket. And when I asked him like, dad, we can't be back here. This is the cooking area. Mm -hmm. He was like, so 
I want my chips. Like no regard for the fact that a person that is eating at the restaurant does not go into the kitchen. So my question, and I think a question for a lot of people is, Mm -hmm. do they understand? That is an excellent question and something that you know, when, so I was, I was lucky enough to be involved in the development of the revised criteria for behavioral variant FTD. And so we had a lot of discussions about, you know, what are the behaviors and how can we define them? And one of the things that we debated because it was part of the the previous criteria was insight, you know, in the previous criteria, there was a very clear, you know, there has to be lots of insight. Now, something that happens with patients sometimes that is like very difficult to reconcile in your head is that you can ask is like, so do you know why you're here? It's like, yeah, I have FTD. And and do you know what that means? Oh, you know, my family says that I'm doing inappropriate things. And hmm. the, the issue is that they don't have any effective like emotional backing to that, right? It's almost like they know that the behavior is inappropriate. Like if you ask them, is it okay to go and eat all the chips, you know, in the back, they would say no. But do they care? No, they really just don't, you know, like there's no uh, effective backing to the behavior. So in a sense, even if they do understand that it's inappropriate and they do it anyway, and they don't really care, So, yeah, so it's very difficult, you know, as a caregiver, especially in the beginning when you don't know what this is, to be able to deal with those behaviors, like, why are you doing this? Like, you're telling me it's inappropriate, and you're Mm -hmm. still doing it, and it's embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then you have to understand as caregivers that, you know, there really is a disconnect between Mm -hmm. the knowledge and the action. Right. It reminds me, I hate to say it, but it reminds me of when I'm like reprimanding my kids. Like, you know, you're not supposed to do this. Why do you continue to hit your brother? And yeah. they're like, oh, you know, and it's like <laughs> that impulse that like kick in is so yeah. strong that mm-hmm. it defeats any rational thought. Yeah. We're all well, nodding you know, there's our... toy moms. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all of us have little boys so we know I mean and part of it right if you think about it developmentally the frontal lobes are the last to develop and mature I mean there's talk about you know it takes until your 20s especially boys I think um, for those frontal lobes to mature and then you have the opposite almost you know situation in frontal temporal dementia where it's the frontal lobes that are degenerating so Mm -hmm. you start seeing a lot of the same issues and and problems. Let's talk about how many people you think are exhibiting these behaviors and why do we think some people show them and some people don't or why, you know, my mom was diagnosed with PPA, but she did end up exhibiting some of these behaviors. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I think the initial presentations that Rachel talks about with her dad, Frank, and the initial presentation for my mom are different, but at some mm-hmm. point they all yeah. kind they of all start blending similar. together. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, of course, the presentation is going to depend on the areas that the disease affects, right? Like there, you know, that FTD is heterogeneous, you know, in every respect in terms of pathology in the brain, the areas that it 
targets, um, the genetics, and the clinical presentation. So things like disinhibition, for example, will be much more prevalent in people with behavioral variant FDD than uh, non-fluid diagrammatic PPA, for example, and with semantic variants kind of in the middle. So most of my background is in behavioral variant FDD, and because that's like the hallmark feature, I can talk about BBFDD. Um, we think that disinhibition presents in about 76% of behavioral variant FDD patients at the time of the initial evaluation or at the time that they present to clinic. So while apathy, which I know that you talked to with Lauren about, you know, might be a more frequent symptom, it's actually disinhibition that is much more specific. That means that it discriminates between behavioral variant FDD and normal controls or Alzheimer's disease or other dementia. So that's one of the, the features that really, you know, points us to BBFTD. And disinhibition and impulsivity present early on in the disease course, but it seems that it, it kind of like increases up until the middle of the disease course, at least in BBFTD, and then it starts decreasing. And the reason for that is that, you know, negative behaviors take over, like apathy, lack of initiation and reduced mobility, all of that decreases the opportunities for inappropriate disinhibited behavior and like the impulses for that. So I would say, yeah, it's like 76% early and we define early by the first three years. And then it increases up to the middle and then decreases. Hmm. I love statistics. It's so interesting to hear. And I think it's also very validating to hear mm -hmm that such a high percentage exhibits these behaviors. I think just as a side note, a lot of what these episodes do for families is help them feel validated in some of the quote unquote odd things that their loved mm -hmm. one does. So along those lines, could you maybe share some of the quote unquote odd behaviors that you see a lot of? Yeah, sure. Unfortunately, I've, I've seen a lot of things and some of the most heartbreaking stories that I've heard that refer specifically to disinhibition is it takes so long, you know, for people to get diagnosed. And during that time, so many things can happen. And especially, you know, a lot of families coming to us saying, you know, we're bankrupt. Uh, we've we realize, you know, like my father was uh, giving away property or gambling or um, impulsively buying things and doing all sorts of financial decisions that, of course, you know, at the time, nobody knew what was happening. But now they know, but they can't really do anything about. So those are some of the most common things that we see. And then, you know, uncommon, but really very distressing Things like patients getting into legal trouble because they, I mean, we had one patient that came home in handcuffs because he took the car, like stole a car from a friend of the daughter's and went to the supermarket in the middle of the night and just, you know, took a bunch of food and started eating it. And, you know, that's stealing, but really, I mean, he had no control over that behavior. We had a patient at one point that was arrested because he was publicly urinating in front of a school. It had nothing to do with school. It had nothing. It just, you know, he was just impulsively urinating wherever 
he would go and, and then he got in trouble legally for it. So of course, you know, that just kind of brings the point that the quicker we can get to a diagnosis, the quicker we can provide help and resources and, you know, for the, the caregivers to make plans as to how they're going to control the environment so that these things don't happen. This is like my dad. My dad was, he was behavioral variant FTD, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. to a T. If he's going to do something, he's going to do it right. Mm-hmm. So all of these things, like I saw it exactly how you're saying, like, whoa, these, he's getting like really I don't like the word out of control, but he was like, Mm -hmm. he was in legal trouble. He was in jail. He was in a halfway house. I mean, the things that this poor man went through because his brain was deteriorating, but on the outside, he's a 50 year old guy that's not showering, but he can talk to me and tell me why he's not showering. So there's this feeling as a caregiver of being like, a little bit gaslit. Like you're like, okay, you don't have to shower. I guess you're giving me a good reason, but you're also like not functioning anymore. It's such a phenomenon that I don't think you can like, I can't articulate it the way I want to, but I wish I had a Katia and a Dr. Irwin and all the people that we are just in awe of when we were going through this. Um, Can you sort of speak to like when a family presents itself in the clinic with this very disinhibited person, like what are tools that you give them? Okay. So, I mean, let me preface by saying that every person is different, right? So any strategies need to be tailored to the individual for them to be effective. But with that said, you know, there are some basic strategies that we we think of when people are come to the clinic, it's their first time. And this is, you know, the point of diagnosis. And the first and most important thing we can do is what you're doing with your podcast, right? Like it's education. It truly is. I mean, it's amazing. I've had caregivers cry in the initial diagnosis, not because they were, I mean, frustrated, of course, but it was like relief to finally understand that you can have apathy and hyperality and disinhibition and compulsive behaviors at the same time. And it actually means something. It's a syndrome. It means that there's like a part of the brain that's degenerated. It's not, we're going crazy. What's happening, you know, with our loved one. So education is very important, right? So caregivers and families need to understand that these behaviors are not intentional. They're not volitional, right? This is the disease talking. There's a part of the brain that's degenerating and that's causing the behavior. So I know it's very difficult, like you said, and especially if someone's very high functioning, you know, physically active, young, cognitively with it. But it's difficult to understand and accept this fact. But once you do, it's easier to reframe the situation and have compassion for the patient and for yourself, right, as a caregiver. And if you understand and accept that the patient has like little insight or no insight and can't control the behavior, then you you don't take it personally, right? Like both of you are doing the best you can. It's not about you. It's not about them. It's, it's just the situation, And that in itself can be therapeutic. In a similar manner, there's no logical argument that is going to change the patient's behavior. So don't argue. Don't argue with your loved one. Don't try to change their mind. It's it's really going to cause 
frustration for both of you. And it's probably not going to change their behavior. Instead of that, try to redirect, try to distract, try to divert. Those are the best things that you can do and, and they work. And then remember that rigidity is a hallmark feature of FDD. So it's up to you. You're, you're going to be the one who's going to have to be flexible. So pick your battles, you know, try to roll with it. Some things are just not worth, you know, trying to like, what is it? Force a square peg in a peg round hole. Peg into a hole. Yeah, you yeah. <laughs> It's like an American saying, but I like it. So then, so that's in terms of education. Then the second thing that we think about that's like crucial is safety. So we need to proactively restrict activities that may get patients into trouble. For example, you know, we know that patients can drive impulsively. And, you know, at that point, you're going to need to restrict driving. And as clinicians, of course, the last thing that we want to do is curtail someone's independence or take a driver's license away. But sometimes it just needs to be done for safety. And I remember Dr. Grossman, uh, when he was seeing patients, he would tell caregivers, let us be the bad guys, you know, like we can be the ones recommending that the patient stop or get a driving evaluation. We just need to make sure that they're covered and that we're making sure that everybody's safe. As soon as you can get durable power of attorney, at least in the case of behavioral variant FTD, we know that behavioral variant FTD affects the frontal lobe, which causes both impulsivity and lack of judgment. And that's the worst possible combination you can have for decision-making. So you need to actively, proactively control decision-making. And we want to make sure that, you know, you don't hear these stories about people going bankrupt because of gambling problems or giving away money. You need to make sure that you have some control of accounts and credit cards, things like that. And we can try medications. And right now, you know, the medications are for managing symptoms, but we can talk about this later. You know, there's some promising agents in the horizon, but they're not approved yet. But there are things like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and SSRIs that are antidepressants like Prozac and, you know, Cymbalta, things of that nature. Those medications appear to be for some people, beneficial in things like managing disinhibition, compulsivity, hyperorality. It doesn't work for everybody, you know, and it, it might work a little bit. It's not the panacea, but they're pretty well tolerated. So it's something that you might want to ask your doctor to see if, you know, it would be appropriate. Now, when the behaviors get really, really tough and patients are very agitated or very disruptive, you could try like what they call atypical antipsychotics in low doses, you know, but usually those are kept for, you know, last resort because they can have some motor side effects and some cognitive side effects. And then because medications, you know, at this point are not like the end all be all, we try to control the environment or restructure the environment. So inappropriate behaviors often happen because the patient is overwhelmed or they just are unable to understand or manage, navigate their environment. And you can minimize the cognitive demands of the environment and the anxiety that that produces by making things simple and predictable. So in other words, structure and routine right? Create structure and routine whenever possible. So for example, like 
I know I'm like, oh yeah, do this. But I know that it's very, very <laughs> difficult <laughs> with people's lives and with FTD in particular, but to the extent possible, have a consistent daily routine, like with specific times for things like eating and resting and exercise, and then have like a visual schedule, you know, like a dry erase board where the patient can see, oh, okay, this is Monday. We're going to do this and this and this. And you can refer to that and that reduces anxiety for a lot of patients. And they can just, it tells them what, what's next. Hmm. Have things like a memory place for, you know, keys and wallet and glasses so that they're not always looking. It's like, this is your memory place. This is where you keep your stuff. And then try to incorporate activities that are pleasant, that are structured, that are simple throughout the day. Hopefully things that are like personally enjoyable, that either give them a sense of calm or accomplishment, you know, it could be just helping with something if possible. And for those, you need to play a little detective, you know, get the help from your clinical team, right? Make sure that the activities that you're thinking about are in line with the cognitive and the physical and the behavioral abilities that the patient has at that point in time. For those of you who have access, you know, consider adult daycare programs or companions because, you know, the more you introduce, the more activities that you can introduce into the day, the less opportunity the patient has to be agitated or anxious or disinhibited. Mm. And needless to say, like avoid overstimulating environments or environments that, you know, if you can, that you can't control or abrupt transitions, you know, just when you do, like if you have to go to a social event or something, you know, discuss the plan ahead of time and tell them, okay, this is what's going to happen. And then prompt them throughout the time of the social event and recruit help from your family and your friends, you know, education is for you. And it's also for your circle. It becomes so much easier. And I know it's hard because there's still, it's like, Oh, do you want to share this? You know, but it just becomes so much easier when you are able to talk freely and frankly with the people around you and they can help. They can help in many ways, you know, and at least just so that you don't feel stressed that like, oh, how am I going to explain this? You know, it's like people know and it's okay. So yes. well said. All of this is so, it's yeah. gold. It's gold. Very, very, very helpful. I want to also just say like, so my dad was, he used to love to draw. Like he could sit down and he would color for a very long time. And I remember once I was sitting with him and he said something extremely like, inappropriate, very sexual. And I was just, I kind of looked at him like, whoa, like <laughs> I don't even, you know, it was shocking. And it was the first time he's ever said something like that. Mm -hmm. I like remember exactly where I was. And I think it's also something to keep in mind as a caregiver, like you're allowed to be shocked. Like mm -hmm. you don't have to put on that face of like, oh, okay. And I did that a lot with him. Like I didn't let him see me get Mm -hmm. upset or I'm still human, you know, and I still yeah. had a response to that. Like it was, it put me in such a weird spot that I kind of looked at him. I'm like, don't say that. And he laughed and then I laughed and it was over. But I think there's something in that idea of you're still human. Like 
I, I don't know if I'm making sense, but yeah, no, absolutely. And I okay. think that maybe one of the things that I can impart is that whole issue of insight, right? I, mm-hmm. I know that a lot of caregivers are very worried about what am I going to say in front of him? Mm-hmm. You know, am I making him feel this way or that mm-hmm. way? Or and and it's it's so distressing because you really don't know, but sometimes you can't help but be shocked. I I do believe that for most patients, like that's part of the disease is this lack of effective connection to the behavior. So don't be afraid. You know, some of the the families that I've seen that have managed it just remarkably well uh, are very open about the behaviors and deal with it with a lot of humor. And, you know, for somebody who is not a part of this unfortunate FTD community, right? They would be like, oh my God, what are you saying? Like, why are you talking about, you know, <laughs> sexual innuendo or like comments? Or, But for those of us who knows, or would this, that's your clinical team, that's your family, that's the people around you and, the, and your community of caregivers, you can talk about it. And you can, you know, it can be open and even in front of the patient. And I've seen that really recently I saw it with a family and they were just making jokes about it and just, you know, addressing it. It's part of their lives and it was the best way that they could handle it. And it was like, it was an example for me. It was really a lesson for me on how to be able to navigate this very difficult situation. That was part of like the highlight of when I would go visit my dad is I'd crack jokes right to him. He'd be Mm -hmm. sitting in his wheelchair and I'd be like, don't move. And I'd look at him and he'd look at me like, come on, don't you go anywhere. I have to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. And he would look at me and I could see it sometimes more than others. Like, shut up, you know? So I think there's a beautiful way to also kind of weave in humor because ultimately still my dad. We're going to just kind of drop in to talk about some specific behaviors, um, Shay, that you witnessed. But could you just, for the listeners, refresh their memory on who you are and what your story is with your mom? Sure. So, uh, yes, I am Shay Leonia, and my mom was Nancy Hass, known as Mrs. Hass amongst my friends. And she started exhibiting her behaviors in 1994. So I was just in third grade at the time and the hit the fan pretty much once my mom went missing one day and was found walking two miles from her crashed car, two hours away from where we lived in the middle of the night on a broken ankle and didn't even register that she was in pain or anything like that. And a state trooper found her, brought her to the hospital. And finally, uh, that kind of expedited the process of her being able to finally get diagnosed with what was referred to at the time with Pick's disease. Okay. So uh, one of the things that I I just want to make it clear to the listeners that the three of us discussed beforehand, whether or not we should include this in the episode, because graciously um, I had brought it up in the, in the previous recording, but um, you know, the two of you had decided to remove it and I completely understand why, but you know, the three of us came together on why we feel it's important to share this symptom today and to not edit it out. And one of those symptoms that um, was very traumatic for me was that my mom was coming into the living room topless. She would 
also masturbate um, when we were all in the living room. And she would masturbate underneath a cover in her chair. And we just were so appalled and so shocked that it was happening. Um, I, I don't know what my sister thought of it or, you know, cause we were just telling her incessantly, mom, stop, mom, stop, ew, mom, stop. And then when she would come into the, into the room topless, we, you know, she would be beating a rhythm on her stomach with her hands, just like doing a rhythm. And I, we were just all so shocked by the behavior. And that is why I was no longer able to have friends come over because we just, it was too unpredictable. But what I, and you know, all of us want people to know is that when someone with this disease is, is displaying behavior that way, that's so inappropriate. And with your right mind, you would never think of doing. It's not that someone is expressing their, you know, their Un, unmet fantasies. It's not some something that they're doing as a voyeur. They're not trying to, you know, excite anyone. They literally have no awareness that anyone exists outside of the bubble that they are living in. It, it took me a long time to come to terms with that because it's nothing that she would have ever been, you know, for doing. She, this was the the woman that raised me covering my eyes during, you know, kissing scenes. The kissing scenes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So- <laughs> It's just, I, I just want people to know that it's, it doesn't make someone a pervert if that ends up being one of their symptoms. They're not suddenly, you know, somebody that, that needs to be locked up behind bars. Like, it's not like that at all. Can you tell us a little bit about hypersexuality and FTD? So I think that there are really two types of hypersexual behavior that can occur in FTD. So a lot of what we see in uh, behavioral variant FTD, at least, is really opportunistic behavioral disinhibition with sexual content. And what I mean by that is like sexual comments or sexual jokes or inappropriate touching or kissing of somebody who comes in, you know, if they find them attractive. But it's not true hypersexual behavior. So that kind of opportunistic sexual content, I would say, can be caused by frontal dysfunction, right, which is the hallmark of FTD. But truly hypersexual behavior involves a dramatic increase in sexual desire and the frequency of actual sexual acts. This is much less common, but it can happen in BBFTD. And Again, I guess Dr. Mendes is my guru on this one. <laughs> um, he, he has a beautiful article for those of you who are, who are interested about hypersexuality and BBFTD, where he compares, he, he did a very thorough review of like these kinds of behaviors, try to like operationalize them and compare them to people with Alzheimer's disease. And people with Alzheimer's disease didn't have these like overt, like true hypersexual behaviors. But 13% of BVFTD patients did have it. And when it is, you know, this increase in desire and sexual acts, it's usually because of dysfunction in the right anterior temporal lobe. So it seems like there's like two different things going on. You know, it's the maybe jokes and comments and things that people do impulsively just to be provocative but they don't necessarily translate to acts. And then there's people who do, you know, have this increased hy like hypersexuality 
usually because of dysfunction in the right anterior temporal lobe. That is so interesting that like science can know that. Yeah, like, you can pinpoint yeah. the area. I, I do think that helps so much with just mentally removing the behavior from that person that we knew and loved and who they truly are. It's, it's, it's not them. It's their brain is impacted. Now, do you have any advice for anyone? Like, what would you say to a family that, that comes in? It's like, I'm really struggling with this part of the disease. It's just so unlike who they were. That is a big one. I mean, one of the things that people do try is medication. So especially SSRIs, SSRIs, those antidepressants are known to cause hypo, like to, to decrease sexual desire and activity. So they can be pretty effective. I mean, I don't know that it's going to take care of all of it, but it could help. And then of course, you know, it's the environment. And then again, like that issue of education, like being able, what you said, being able to separate, like, this is not my mom. This is, you know, like, a disease in the right temporal lobe that is causing these effects. And it's, as we talked about, you know, those behaviors like disinhibition, impulsivity, compulsivity, hyperality, they're going to increase up to a point. And then at some point, they're going to go down. It's unfortunate. And we're just going to have to like, accept it, try to restructure the environment, try to use any medications that are out there to manage it until it becomes more manageable. I think too, I hate using like the kids analogy, but do you remember when the newborn face and you were like, if I don't sleep, I'm going to rip my own eyes out of their sockets. Like, and then you look back and you're like, I want to go back. Like when you know something ends, it yeah. makes it more tolerable. Like I know my newborn isn't going to need me at 18. I mean, my nine-year-old still needs me, so I'm blessed. <laughs> but it's it's a different idea of like, yes. if you know there's going to be a peak and then a plummet, you can almost like, it's a countdown. Like, okay, it can't mm-hmm. get worse. Okay, it got a little worse. Okay, maybe this is it. I think mm-hmm. knowing that is so beneficial. I didn't know that. I had mm-hmm. no idea that they go yeah. up and then they stop. I just they thought do. the disease has taken over. Now he can't move as well. He can't mm-hmm. speak mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, when people come up to you when you have small children and they're like, enjoy, the days are long, but the years are short. Yeah. And you're like, shut up. <laughs> Uh, but then you're well, like, then that's why, right. yeah, <laughs> it, it's true. But in the moment, like what you need is community. And, and I think you guys are doing an amazing job at building community. And, you know, truly for the experts, <laughs> we're experts on a group level, right? Um, a lot of the time. I mean, th- those of us who do clinical work can have more of an insight into what happens. But in general, in research, it's all about like the group. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we don't know what happens after, like after we evaluate, after mm-hmm. we test. And how are people managing on a day-to-day basis? And then sometimes when we have these caregiver conferences, you know, that a lot of centers do and the Penn FTD Center does a wonderful job. But in those caregiver conferences, when people start sharing their experience and what they were able to do, you know, like little 
it's like tricks, let's say tricks, but little like modifications to their environment or little, you know, things that they learned from another caregiver that made a world of difference. Those are the things that we we can't impart. We don't know about. It's only when you go to a support group, when you go to a caregiver conference, when you start listening to podcasts, which, you know, tell you about different things that people were able to do that were effective, that we learn you know, how to best manage these behaviors. Remember Me will return with new episodes on March 5th. We're taking a mid-season break to give everyone time to digest all of these really important but deep conversations So don't worry, we'll be back. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram at Remember Me Podcast. Check out our sponsors in the show notes. Be sure to catch up on all of our blogs at RememberMeFTD.com slash blog. Thank you to everyone, including the Penn FTD Center, for being a part of this season. We cannot wait for you to hear the rest of the episodes of season eight, and we hope you take good care. This podcast is produced by Rachel Martinez and Maria Kent Beers, and the beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey Kent.